I want to start by asking you this question. Has this ever been you, or have you ever said or thought something like this? God, if you just get me out of this mess, I'll love you forever. God, if you just answer this prayer, I'll serve you forever. Oh God, just this one time, I, I blew it again. I'll never, ever, ever do it again. I'll follow you forever. Anybody ever done that besides me? Man, I've, I've spent a lot of forevers on situations like that. I want to give you a picture, an illustration. There was a man who went out in his fishing boat into the ocean. In the evening, he was going to try to catch some fish. He went out alone. And he got out in the ocean quite a ways from shore. And it was dark. It was a cloudy night. No stars in the sky. Dark. And all of a sudden, a rogue wave came. This rogue wave, rogue wave came and it tipped the boat and sank it almost instantly. No chance to grab anything. No chance to put on a life jacket. Nothing. And there he is floating in the water and his boat has sank. And he doesn't swim very well. And he knows he's a long ways from shore. And he cries out, God, if you rescue me and get me out of this mess, I'll do whatever you ask for the rest of my life. And almost immediately, up out of the water popped like a big beverage cooler floating. And it was close enough he got a hold of it. And he's like, wow, how lucky am I? And he starts kicking and heading towards shore, hanging on to this cooler because without it, he knew he'd drowned. And he had gone and he was starting to get tired and the shoreline was still a long ways away. And here came another wave, not near as big, but it was big enough and it surprised him in the darkness that it knocked the cooler out of his hands and the cooler went floating away into the darkness and there he was again, floating in the ocean, but not floating very well. And he cries out to God again. God, if you get me out of this, if you save my life, I'll serve you forever. And almost immediately he sees what looks like a shark real close because it's dark and he sees a fin and then he realizes it's a dolphin. And the dolphin swims right up to him and he grabs the fin. And the dolphin heads towards shore. Wow, how lucky am I. A dolphin that likes me. And he's headed towards shore and he goes quite a ways and all of a sudden he's got his hand on the dolphin's fin and all of a sudden the dolphin takes a 90 degree turn and takes off this way and there he is again. And guess what he does this time? God, if you just rescue me so I don't drown, I don't want to die, I'll serve you forever. And he hears a voice and the voice says some really profound words. Stand up. He stands up and he's on the ground. It's so dark he didn't see how close he was to the shore. And he walks to shore and says, man, oh man, this has got to be the luckiest day of my life. And nothing in his life changes. Well, in the story, in the chapter we're in, chapter 8, it really covers the book of Judges. And we see something in the life of Israel, the nation of Israel, that's got some similarities to that story. The nation of Israel is in a period of history, their history, that resembles this thing in a critical way. 
Now, it's called the period of the judges. Thus, it's written in the book we call the book of Judges. And to give us a little context, it's been about 700 years since Abraham had heard the promises of God, where God had promised Abraham that he would become this mighty nation, that his offspring would be like the sands of the sea. So numerous you couldn't count them. It's been 700 years. And here they are, finally. They are God's chosen people. And they're in the land that God had promised to give to them. And they've got a temple that the presence of God dwells in. They've got the law to guide their lives. They've got a sacrificial system to deal with the sin in their lives, in the lives of the nation. Everything's great. These are a blessed people, God's chosen people. But there was one thing that had not changed, and that was sin. And sin was still present in the people, still present in their lives. It still reigned in their heart way more than you would have thought it would. Israel made two big mistakes, the nation of Israel. If you remember when God told them to go in and inhabit the land, he told Joshua, he says, everywhere your foot shall tread, I have already given it to you. It's yours. But you're going to go in and you're going to fight for it. And you're going to drive out the enemy. Drive them out completely. Kill them. Destroy them. Don't leave any of the enemy there. In Judges chapter 1, verse 28, it says this, When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but they never drove them out completely. Boy, that is a powerful word pointing out a huge mistake. In, in verse 29 through the end of the chapter, or verse uh, 19 through the end of the chapter, um, I'm not going to read it all, but it says starting in verse, let's see, I'm going to jump down to 27. Manasseh. The family, Manasseh, they didn't drive him out. Then it says Ephraim and his people, they didn't drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun and his people, they had divided up the land under all these names. And it says Zebulun didn't drive out the inhabitants. Then it says Asher didn't drive out the inhabitants. Naphtali didn't drive out the, the, the inhabitants. And Dan didn't drive out the inhabitants. And all these people were remaining in their country that they were supposed to inhabit. And in verse 12 of chapter 2, it says this, The people forsook the Lord. His people, it says, forsook the Lord. The God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt, they followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. The reason for God's warning, His command. Matter of fact, there is a scripture that says, I know the hearts of my people, they're not going to do this. But he gave them this clear command to drive out the enemy because they knew that the enemy would influence the people. The title of my message was simply The Call Versus the Culture. Israel, God's chosen people, were called to be a shining light of the goodness of God. But they did not drive out the culture. And as we've talked about before, the Canaanite culture was evil to its core. They worshipped all kinds of idols. 
And we've mentioned this a few times because it's us, it's so revolting and shocking. They, they even sacrificed their children on the altar. They would kill children if they were building a building and put children in the foundation of the building because it was supposed to protect them and prosper them. Their temple worship included a number of prostitutes as part of the worship ceremonies. They were just plain out evil. That's why God, after all these years of giving them a chance to turn to him, he said, now is the time we're going to destroy them all, but you got us to destroy them all. There's a lesson there for us that's equally as important as it was to Israel. We don't, aren't called to go out and destroy the people, but we're called to be different than the culture. The warnings are significant. The environment that we live in can influence our behavior dramatically, no matter how strong we think we are. The enemy's subtle. The culture just kind of seeps into our soul if we're not constantly on the alert. One of the traps we fall into so easily is to say, well, you know, look at us, look at me. We're not so bad. Look at the world. Wrong standard of comparison. Our culture, I think most of us would agree, if we'd go back 50 years, 40 years, 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, every decade, we'd say, what is happening to our culture? It's becoming darker and darker. And 50 years ago, the church could have said, wow, we're not as bad as them. But as the decades have passed, and the cultures went from over here to way over here, <clears throat> the church says, we're still not as bad as them, but we've moved right along with them. And our standard of comparison is the culture. Our standard of comparison should always be Christ, not the culture. Our standard of comparison is Jesus Christ. He's holy and righteous. Now we know, and I'm not going to go into that, we know we all sin. We know we all mess up. But we also should know that all of that is covered by the cross. And that sin does not have power to hold us. But if we give in, there will be consequences. All, all of our behaviors have consequences. When we make, and I tell people this quite often, when we are trying, as the Holy Spirit leads us, to get our life to look more like Christ, as we surrender the Holy Spirit, that's one of His jobs. He wants to create in us a Christ-likeness. When we make that decision, you know what? Some things need to change. One of the first things we need to realize is we need to change our environment in some ways. Honestly, when our choice goes bad is usually when we decide who we're going to spend all our time with. So sometimes we'd finally make this big mistake way over here. Well, it started way back here when we made that first choice. In 1 Corinthians 10.14, it says, therefore, my dear friends, free from idolatry. And before you think you're off the hook because we don't worship idols, we all worship idols. We all have idols in our life. In 2 Timothy 2.22, it says, flee the evil desires of your youth. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. They're all available to us. The Holy Spirit lives in us and is all of that. But yet it says here we need to pursue it. We need to aggressively go after 
living a holy and righteous life as the Holy Spirit leads. And it's all by grace. It's not, about, it's not by works. But it says we need to pursue it intentionally. We need to make right choices. Their first choice was they let the culture change them instead of Israel changing the culture. We need to always be on the guard that we're not letting the culture change us. Our calling is to be light, be ambassadors of Christ, and see the culture changed. The second big mistake they made was they did not teach their children about God and His ways. You know, Joshua, towards the end of his life, one of those quotes that quite a few of you probably remember, we see it on door knockers, you know, those metal things, there's this verse, it's from Joshua. What's it say? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. My house, meaning my family, my children, my offspring, will serve the Lord. The only way they're going to serve the Lord is if they know the Lord, are taught. There's many times in Scripture we're exhorted to teach our children. And they didn't do it. In Joshua 2, chapter 10, it says this, After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, that's, that's, here's what that means, after the generation of Joshua died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. They didn't teach their children. They didn't even give testimonies of the goodness of God. Isn't that mind-boggling? To me, it's like, you mean to say you never told them about the story of the priest stepping into the flooding Jordan River and the waters backing up? How in the world could you forget that story? You never told them about that crazy day, the first city you're going to conquer, the most powerful city in all of Canaan. You come to Jericho, you're just off of a circumcision that laid you up for a few days, and God just had you walk around the city six days, one time, and the seventh day you went around it seven times and screamed, and the walls came tumbling down. Wouldn't you think you'd like to tell that story? But it says here the kids didn't know the Word of God. They hadn't been taught the word. They didn't even know of the great and mighty works that he'd done. You'd think they'd still be talking about the parting of the Red Sea and all the other miracles. But they didn't do it. You may have heard this said before. It's not original with me by any means. But the line is this. We are one generation from the extinction of Christianity. One generation, we think, how can it change so fast? One generation away. It's amazing how many people, even in the United States of America, with all the media, all the technology, do not know Jesus. And I don't mean they're not saved, because there's a lot of them. I mean they don't know about Him. How can that be? They don't even know who He is. You'd think in our culture that'd be impossible. But I hear it over and over. We're one generation away. They made the mistake and they turned from God and worshipped idols. So this is the mess they were finding themselves in. It's a mess 
we're sort of walking in in our own nation, in our own lives, in our own families that we need to be made aware of. In Israel's history, God did something. He raised up judges. Now, when we think of a judge, you might think of a guy in a black robe or a gal in a black robe sitting in a courtroom with a gavel on her hand. Well, sort of. But they were as much warriors as they were people who settled legal disputes. And God in His mercy would raise up these judges. And He did it for two reasons. One of the reasons was simply He had called Israel to be His chosen people, to be a shining light, to be an example of the blessings that God gives to those who love and serve Him. So really, one of the reasons He raised up judges was to protect His own reputation. Because Israel was falling into idolatry and sin of all sorts. The second reason is he raised them up to deliver his people out of the mess they were in and draw them back to himself. One of the verses that it brings to my mind isn't in Judges, it's in 2 Chronicles. And again, it might be a familiar verse in 2 Chronicles 7.14. We hear it today a lot of times when there's national prayer meetings or prayer meetings of some sort where we're going to gather and pray for our nation. And the verse says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face. Boy, just think about that. Step by step by step. If they will do these things. And then he says, If they turn from their wicked ways, then, then I will hear from heaven and then I'll heal their land. And basically, that's what Israel did through this time period of the book of Judges. They would go through a cycle that, I I don't know about you, but I can relate to this cycle in my own personal life. They would go through this cycle over and over and over. The period of Judges covered approximately 330 years. Think about that. We as a nation aren't even that old. But this period of of this cycle we're going to look at took place over a period of about 330 years. And the first phase of that cycle is sin. God's chosen people, they're living under the blessings of God, and all of a sudden, sin. Idol worship. Idolatry of some sort. Violating of the law back in those days. But they enter into sin. They worship other gods. You know, God put a desire in us when He formed us to worship. But that desire was put in us to worship Him, the one true God. The reason He is so, so abhorrent towards idolatry is it takes our eyes off of Him, whatever it is we're making an idol of. God's desire from day one in the garden with creation of Adam and Eve, was to be first in the lives of his people. Hasn't changed. In Exodus 20, verse 3, a couple of commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. And in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart 
with all your soul and with all your mind. He wants to be first in our lives. Psalms 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. So often we think that, that God, because He's jealous for our affection, jealous for our attention, that, that it, it's almost like a punishment to us. We feel like, gee, we've got to give everything up to serve Him. Well, the answer is yes and no. He says He will give us the desires of our heart when we seek Him with our whole heart. We have a God that wants us to worship Him because He knows when we're in that place of worshiping Him, sold out to Him, loving Him, we will be blessed among all the peoples of the world. Doesn't mean you won't have a bad day. Doesn't mean something bad might not happen. But you will be blessed. So sin enters in. And when sin enters in, oppression follows. Phase two of this ugly cycle. When, when the people entered into sin, it's like God said, oh, I love you guys so much, but my hands of protection are being removed and you're going to experience the consequences of your sin. And sin is a horrible master. When we sin, if you're a Christian and you sin, you don't lose your salvation. But fellowship is harmed. We open ourselves up to all kinds of things from the enemy, from our culture, from the world. Phase three is that oppression. Or phase two, excuse me. And the people would become so oppressed. It was amazing. When you read the book of Judges, you know, one of the things I always remind myself of is how God looks at times so different than us. You begin to grasp this idea like a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. 330 year time frame in the book of Judges. And out of that 330 years, they were oppressed by foreign powers for 111 years. A third of the time, they were oppressed. God's chosen people who had seen all the miracles. Proof that idolatry of any kind will lead to servitude. It will become your master. And again, I, I probably don't need to remind us, but most of us don't have idols in our living room. Well, that's not true. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even going to touch the TV thing. We don't carve things out of wood and gold and call it an idol and bring gifts to it and sacrifice to it. We don't do that, but we do have idols in our home. Our work can be an idol. Work becomes our master. Our identity is in what we do. We're focused on work and we sacrifice everything else at the expense of our job. Believe it or not, family can become an idol. We start putting family and our whole focus that comes on our family before God, we're going down a dangerous path. Good thing this isn't Super Bowl Sunday, but sports and recreation can become an idol. We have a whole nation focused on a football game, for crying out loud. And if you know me, you know I'm a sports nut. But think about that. Our news media 
I mean, I, I look at one guy being interviewed, and there's about 30, 40, 50, 60 reporters killing each other to get close to hear the word from somebody who might have graduated with a degree in attendance or something. <laughs> like, who cares what they say? Who cares? Our whole nation worships these people. The movie industry, entertainers, it just goes on and on. Christians are just as guilty of that. Man, I can't afford to give 10 bucks to the church, but I can spend $40 on a ticket to go watch so-and-so, a Christian entertainer, drive 150 miles one way, stay in a hotel and go out for dinner. Sorry, God, I've got nothing for you. Tell me we don't have idols in our life. When it takes the place of God's place in our lives, we have an idol. And we are opening ourselves up to become servants of those idols. And I haven't even touched on drugs, alcohol, pornography, gambling. And it just goes on. Food. Another one of my favorite idols in my life. Food. You ever finish dinner and start thinking about, I wonder what I'm going to do for supper. <laughs> Let's see, we're going to go from here to the cities. We're going to go this route because... There's a great restaurant there, and I love the donuts at that gas station there. That's St. Peter for me. Oh, I love those donuts. What in the world are we thinking? And we can just blow those things off, and, and you know, there's nothing wrong with a donut, especially. But we can blow those things off, but when they, something like those things become our focus, we have a problem. They didn't think. They didn't go into the promised land expecting to live 111 years as slaves again in the promised land. <clears throat> they succumbed to the culture. Mesopotamia took over them eight years. Moabites, 18. Canaanites, 20. Midianites, 7. Ammonites, 18. Philistines, 40. And God raised up a judge each time because the people would realize they're in this oppressed state and cry out to God, which leads to level or phase three of this cycle, and that's repentance. A turning away, a crying out to God. Really crying out to God. <coughs> really turning away. Not like the guy in the ocean, you know, who has the cooler and then the dolphin and then he can't stand up. Cry out to God and know darn well, I don't mean it. Just get me out of this mess. And it's like, who are you, God? Turning to God out of their oppression. This word you'll see will turn to or return to the Lord. The picture is, I realize what we're doing. We need to turn away from it. But it was so hard for them because at that time they were married and intermarried and they were marrying to Moabites and Canaanites. And God would raise up the judges. Well... We have something way better than one of those judges. We have Jesus. He is our deliverer. He delivered us from the power of sin. He delivered us from the power of death. He's the one we turn to when we realize, where am I? What am I thinking? Why am I going there? I confess this is not what you want from me, God. And all of a sudden, fellowship returns. The oppression lifts and brings about the fourth step in that cycle, deliverance. As good as the judges were, you need to realize when you're reading the book, God did the delivering, not the judges. 
They were just tools. He used men. He still uses man to bring his people out of bondage. And these judges, if you, re if you read the story, you'll discover real quickly, they were not perfect people. So the qualification to bring someone out of bondage is not be a, be a perfect person. Because there are none. We'll look at a couple of them just real briefly, but there are none. God will use you and me in our sphere of influence to help bring people out of bondage. He does the work, but He will use us and work through us. And every single one of us here have a specific sphere of influence. Some of yours may have a much bigger sphere than others, but we do have a sphere of influence, and it starts in our home. That God wants to use us to keep us on track, to keep people on track, to bring people out of that kind of bondage. In 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul gives a great reminder that we need to hear. He says this, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. I don't even like to think about what I was when I was called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things of this world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. I like that. You know, you ever been called silly for your faith? Stupid for your faith? Who do you think you are? You're nobody. Man, oh man, oh man, are we in good company. And we're pretty close to being in a position where God can really use us. That's who we are. And he does this that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom from God. That is, he has become our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. I am holy, I am righteous, and I am redeemed. And so are you if Jesus is your Lord and Savior. That's part of who you are. Wow. Call me foolish. Call me lowly. Call me stupid. But I am holy and righteous and redeemed through Christ. It's a fair trade. It's a no-brainer. Therefore it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You don't have to be perfect. You know, some of us have been Christian for a long time. Some have just been born again. And just because you've been a Christian for a long time doesn't mean you're much further down the road of sanctification than anybody else. But we all are somewhere on that path. My point is this. It doesn't matter where you are on that path. You can be used by God. doesn't matter. No excuses. No excuses. Two of the judges, and I'm going to do this real quickly, Gideon. I love Gideon. I love Gideon because when the angel of the Lord comes to him, he says, Oh, valiant warrior. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know where the old valiant warrior was and what he was doing. He was hiding in the wine press, crushing the wine out of the straw because he was afraid the Midianites might see him and come and steal the wheat or barley or whatever it was. Oh, mighty warrior. Wow. God sees you differently than you see yourself. He sees you for what you could be in Him. 
mighty warrior. And after he gets called this mighty warrior, Gideon says, well, God, if, if, you're, this, if you're our God and all that, I, you know, I've heard that, but why is all this bad stuff happening to us? I can relate to Gideon again. And in Judges 6.15, the Lord finally, uh, by, by Gideon, the Lord, but he says to Gideon, says to the Lord, but Lord, how in the world can I save Israel? And then he gives his qualifications. He says, I, my clan or my family is the weakest in all of Manasseh. In other words, that'd be like me saying, my family is the weakest in the whole state of Minnesota. Okay, good, you're qualified. And then he says this, and I'm the least in my family. And God said, good. You're right where I want you. Gideon then starts to debate with God. And you're probably maybe familiar with him throwing out the fleece. You, ever, you even hear that phrase, I've got to hear God, but I'm going to throw out a fleece to see if God really is going to prove himself. God put up with all that stuff with Gideon. I love Gideon. He says, go and tear down the idol, the Ashtorah poles. Go tear down those idols. And, and, and Gideon's like, okay, Lord. And no, he wasn't like that. He was, are you kidding me, Lord? One of them is in my family's backyard. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait till night. Maybe about two in the morning. And then I'm going to sneak in there and tear that idol down and I'm going to run like crazy. That's what he did. Mighty warrior. Valiant warrior. I think he says, we'll call him Mike instead of Gideon. It's like, yeah, it sounds like a good plan to me, Gideon. And then he tells Gideon, get an army. I'm going to, this, this humongous army's camped. Hundreds of thousands. And he says, Gideon, get an army. Gideon sent, finally, he says, okay, Lord, you did the fleece thing for me. He forms an army of 32,000. What did the Lord do? He took a look at the army. Too many. So they came up with a creative way to thin it down a little bit. Got it down to 300. Finally says, okay, we're ready to roll. 300 against thousands and thousands. And then he tells them his battle plan. You know, have a, have a sword in one hand and have a clay pot with a, a candle or something lit in it and we're going to surround him on the ridge and then we're going, to, we're going to break that clay pot and the light will shine and we're all going to stand there and holler for, Gideon, for the sword of Gideon and for the Lord. It's almost as stupid a battle plan as the Jericho one, isn't it? And they do it and the people in their confusion turn their swords on each other and kill everybody. Almost. And they track down the ones that got away and kill them too. And then there's Samson. You've probably heard of the strength of Samson. You know, and Samson was used mightily of God. Man, he did some amazing things. How many, how many guys do you know who killed a thousand people with the jawbone of an ass? Man, he's good. Donkey. Sorry, Dylan. <laughs> jawbone of a donkey. But he was weak in so many ways. He had a lust for beautiful women that got him in so much trouble. He had a temper that would get him in big trouble. He had all these issues. And yet God used him mightily. 
And I just point out those two to encourage us. When you read about these heroes in the book of, of, of Hebrews chapter 11, you read about these heroes, sometimes you think, boy, I wish I was one of them. Um, I wish I could be like Gideon. Now you can, just go hide in a wine press and, and pretend you're the weakest and the weakest. Samson, ah, the guy was sexually sick, got him in so much trouble. But they would return to the Lord. And God used them mightily to fulfill his call and plan in their lives. For us, we need to understand, more often than not, if not almost always, almost always, those two words in the same sentence, our problems aren't what's happening to us. Our problems aren't what the circumstances are. Our problems aren't what we don't have or what we do have. Our problems, more often than not, is a spiritual problem. Israel's problem wasn't the Midianites, wasn't the Canaanites, wasn't the Amalekites. Go on through all the ites, the whole list. Their problem was a spiritual problem. They turned away from God. And they found themselves in this vicious cycle. The cycle we can find ourselves in. We sin. We turn away from God, discover sin is our master, we become oppressed. And God in his goodness, his graciousness, reveals where we're at in our life and gives us opportunity to confess and turn back to him, to be restored to that fellowship, that intimacy we want with him. And we're delivered. And he wants us to be his hands and feet. He wants us to be his mouth, his mouthpiece to deliver other people. Let's close in prayer. Father, it's so good to always be reminded of what you can do with imperfect people. And God, it's also good to be reminded of why we find ourselves in so many predicaments that we find ourselves in. God, I thank you for your Holy Spirit and your Word. God, that revealed to us the kind of life that brings glory and honor to you. But Lord, at the same time, I give you so much thanks that my performance doesn't determine your love for us. God, I pray that you would continue to give each one of us revelation by your Holy Spirit, that we might be that shining people that you've called us to be, to be ambassadors of your Son, Jesus that the world would look at us and see the blessings in our life, the love, the joy, the peace that we have in the midst of the culture that's spinning out of control. God, by your grace, may we be a standard that draws people to you. Lord, I pray for those divine appointments that we might speak to those that you bring across our path to lead them into the light and the family of God. And Lord, I pray now for, <clears throat> as we go our separate ways, for your protection on the roads, for anyone that has to travel. God, we pray for Brian and Mindy as they come back from Lake Crystal today. Watch over them, keep them safe. God, we pray that wherever we go this week, we would be sensitive to the truth that your spirit goes before us and that we would follow carefully 
that we may bring you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.